Today's reading is 1 Samuel 25, verses 1 to 19. Now Samuel died, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him at his home in Ramah. Then David moved down into the desert of Paran. A certain man, Imaun, who had property there at Carmel, was very wealthy. He had a thousand goats and three thousand sheep, which he was shearing in Carmel. His name was Nabal, and his wife's name was Abigail. She was an intelligent and beautiful woman, but her husband was surly and mean in his dealings. He was a Calebite. While David was in the wilderness, he heard that Nabal was shearing sheep. So he sent ten young men and said to them, Go up to Nabal at Carmel and greet him in my name. Say to him, Long life to you, good health to you and your household, and good health to all that is yours. Now I hear that it is sheep shearing time. When your shepherds were with us, we did not mistreat them, and the whole time they were at Carmel, nothing of theirs was missing. Ask your servants, and they will tell you. Therefore, be favorable toward my men, since we come at a festive time. Please give your servants and your son David whatever you, whatever you can find for them. When David's men arrived, they gave Nabal this message in David's name. Then they waited. Nabal answered David's servants, Who is this David? Who is this son of Jesse? Many servants are breaking away from their masters these days. Why should I take my bread and water and meat that I've slaughtered for my shears and give it to men coming from who knows where? David's men turned around and went back. When they arrived, they reported every word. David said to his men, Each of you strap on your sword. So they did. And David strapped on his as well. About 400 men went up with David, while 200 stayed with the supplies. One of the servants told Abigail, Nabal's wife, David sent messengers from the wilderness to give our master his greetings, but he hurled insults at them. Yet these men were very good to us. They did not mistreat us, and the whole time we were out in the fields near them, nothing was missing. Night and day, they were a wall around us to the whole time we were, the whole time we were herding our sheep near them. Now think it over and see what you can do, because disaster is hanging over our master and his whole household. He is such a wicked man that no one can talk to him. Abigail acted quickly. She took 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five dressed sheep, five seahs of roasted grain, a hundred cakes of raisins, and two hundred cakes of pressed figs, and loaded them on donkeys. Then she told her servants, Go on ahead, I'll follow you. But she did not tell her husband, Nabal. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Doug. Good morning. Chapter 25 of 1 Samuel records the dispute between David and Nabal, but it's Abigail who is actually at the heart of this account. And I want to suggest to you that she's given to us as an image of the Holy Spirit, 
as the Spirit calls us to turn away from sin and trust more deeply in God. Will you pray with me? Lord, thank you that your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. As we enter into the book of Samuel this morning, our prayer is that we would know you more and that you would shape and fashion us in the likeness of Christ. Amen. In his letter to, to Philippi, uh, Paul describes the transformation that takes place in the life of the believer. He says, In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. For a lot of us, we believe that God has done good work for us by sending his son to die on the cross, taking our place, taking the punishment that we deserve. Yes, the Lord has done a lot of good work for us. But many of us are a lot less certain whether God is doing a good work in us. We became Christians, some of us a long time ago, but have we been becoming more and more Christ-like? What evidence is there that God is completing a good work in us? In these words of Paul to the Philippians, three things stand out. Confidence, insight, and blamelessness. Confidence that God is at work, increasing insight into God's purposes, and blamelessness or growth in purity. Confidence, insight, and blamelessness. As we turn to 1 Samuel 25 and further events in the life of David before he became king of Israel, I want to show you how these three themes are plainly apparent in the Lord's dealings with David. A thousand years before, Paul identifies them as marks of the Lord's transforming work in the life of the believer. Marks which remain indicators of our growth in God today. Confidence, insight, and blamelessness. And I'd like to show you as well one way in which the Holy Spirit goes about working this transformation in us. It's important that we notice that chapter 25 is sandwiched between two similar but subtly different accounts of David meeting with Saul in chapters 24 and 26. In each of these, David has the opportunity to eliminate Saul but does not take it. Now, this story of David, Nabal, and Abigail is not a distraction from the main issue, the power struggle between Saul and David. It's in the center of these events, and it's directly related to them. Before the account begins, the writer of the book of Samuel notes the death of Samuel. 
It cannot be of no consequence to David that the prophet who anointed him king over Israel in place of Saul, who was himself once leader of Israel, whose belief set David off on this trajectory from the least in a family of no note to the throne of Israel, that the prophet is now no longer there to offer his support. Samuel is dead and all Israel mourns. Well, more could be said of this, but the writer of the book of Samuel moves smartly on to introduce us to Nabal. And Nabal's introduction is very interesting. His possessions are introduced before he is. His thousand goats and 3,000 sheep are mentioned before his name. And when his name is mentioned, it means fool. By contrast, his wife, Abigail, is named immediately, and then the author comments on her intelligence and then her beauty. And fool is the Bible's most contemptuous term. The fool is the one who has no idea of God's purposes, no thought of God. The fool is the one at the center of his own existence, never really imagining any object beyond himself. Eugene Peterson says, fools are not ignorant and searching, not lost and looking. Nabal knows it all. The fool is the one with no need of God. It's harvest time, time of celebration and feasting, particularly if you have plenty to feast on. David sends 10 of his men to Nabal to ask him for supplements to their supplies. David has 600 men to feed, a great many mouths in the wilderness. And David's request seems fair enough, given that his men have not stolen from Nabal's flocks, unlike most armies throughout history, which have simply pillaged whatever supplies they needed from those uh, whose homes are near where they're passing by. In fact, David's men have gone so far as to provide protection for the shepherds and their flocks. Now they're hoping for something in return for their goodwill. It is worth considering that David's actions here may not be honorable. At least one prominent Old Testament commentator suggests that the speech David's men make to Nabal could actually easily be read as intimidation. Well-being to you. Well-being to your household. Well-being to all that is yours can really be a warning. And mention of not mistreating Nabal's shepherds in the past might hint at the reversal of this protection in the future. Are David's men really engaged in what today we would call a protection racket? Well, you can read it either way, but certainly David had a strong expectation of a return of his goodwill. And his response to Nabal's ill-considered insult, who does David think he is, is equally immediate and ill-conceived. Each of you strap on your sword, or to put it another way, right, let's go and kill him. Now, we've just read in the last chapter about David's restraint concerning violence, his unwillingness to kill Saul, an evil man who has hunted him relentlessly with the goal of murdering him, though he's been nothing but a faithful servant. Suddenly, that admirable example of trust in God is gone, and David appears as vengeful as Saul. He's been slighted, so he's out for blood. Eugene Peterson again. 
There are fools aplenty in this world, and we're sorely provoked by them. But no sooner do we set out to set them right than we enter into the same foolish wickedness that we're determined to get rid of. Being against Nabal isn't spirituality. There is no spirituality in opposing a fool. At the moment of pressure, disappointment, insult, even injustice, we have a choice. Will we react to the offending person or let our response be to God? Will we let the Lord shape who we are and not the person who we're in conflict with? Artie Kendall, commenting on this passage, says, God will deal with those who mistreat us if we leave it entirely to him. Our God is a God of justice. He loves to vindicate someone others have mistreated. Think about Jesus with the blind man outside of Jericho. When the man cries out for Jesus' help, the crowd rebuke him and tell him to be quiet. Jesus doesn't go over to him. He makes the crowd bring this blind man to him. And then in front of the crowd that has mocked him, Jesus says to the man, receive your sight, your faith has healed you. Our God loves to vindicate someone others have mistreated. He doesn't like it when people hurt you, but if you lose your temper and try to take revenge, he does not like that either. In fact, if you decide to avenge yourself, he will simply take his hands off and say, all right, you handle it. What would you rather, your revenge or the Lord's justice? It is mine to avenge, says the Lord. I will repay. And occasionally he will vindicate us in our lifetime, but he doesn't promise to do this. But vindication is what he does best, and you must leave the timing to him. David and 400 of his men set out to put David's revenge into effect. But at just the same moment, a servant informs Nabal's wife, Abigail, about the folly of her husband, using some fairly startling language for a servant. Disaster is hanging over our master and his whole household. He is such a wicked man that no one can talk to him. Which shows that Abigail completely understood who she was married to. And yet she immediately acts to intervene, collecting a substantial feast together and heading off to forestall David's approach. Let's pick up the account in verse 20. As she came riding her donkey into a mountain ravine, there were David and his men descending toward her, and she met them. David had just said, it's been useless all my watching over this fellow's property in the wilderness so that nothing of his was missing. He's paid me back evil for good. May God deal with David, be it ever so severely, if by morning I leave alive one male of all who belong to him. When Abigail saw David, she quickly got off her donkey and bowed down before David with her face to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, Pardon your servant, my lord. Let me speak to you. Hear what your servant has to say. Please pay no attention, my lord, to that wicked man Nabal. He is just like his name. His name means fool, and folly goes with him. And as for me, your servant, 
I did not see the men my Lord sent. And now, my Lord, as surely as the Lord your God lives, and as you live, since the Lord has kept you from bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your own hands, may your enemies and all who are intent on harming my Lord be like Nabal. And let this gift which your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the men who follow you. Please forgive your servant's presumption. The Lord your God will certainly make a lasting dynasty for my Lord because you fight the Lord's battles and no wrongdoing will be found in you as long as you live. Even though someone is pursuing you to take your life, the life of my Lord will be bound securely in the bundle of the living by the Lord your God. But the lives of your enemies he will hurl away as from the pocket of a sling. When the Lord has fulfilled for my Lord every good thing he promised concerning him and has appointed him ruler over Israel, my Lord will not have on his conscience the staggering burden of needless bloodshed or of having avenged himself. And when the Lord your God has brought my Lord's success, remember your servant. As Abigail arrives, David is still ranting about the injustice done to him. Nabal's rudeness produces rudeness in him. Although our English translations put the word male into David's mouth, his own expression is far more vulgar. And that's what happens when you set yourself on a course towards sin. It multiplies and you feel free to allow sin further room in your life. Abigail's words could not be more of a contrast. This is the longest recorded speech of any woman in Scripture. And it's also one of the greatest speeches in the Bible. If you'll forgive me for quoting uh, Eugene Peterson again, he gets the heart of Abigail's message just right when he summarizes it this way. Your task, David, is not to exact vengeance. Vengeance is God's business, and you are not God. You are out here in the wilderness to find out what God is doing and who you are before God. The wilderness is not an experimental station in which to test yourself, to find out how strong and resilient you are. It is where you discover the strength of God and God's faithful ways of working in and through your life. Nabal is a fool, but don't you also become a fool? One fool is enough in this story. Her words are carefully chosen, not merely to convince him of her argument, but to reconnect him with God, and so to put everything into a proper perspective, to restore spiritual eyes to David, to recover the eyes of faith, a vision of the world from a godly perspective, to reconnect him with God. So she intentionally uses language which reminds David of a moment of great faith and closeness to the Lord. You fight the Lord's battles. The lives of your enemies he will hurl away from you as from a sling. Even more significantly, she dismisses Nabal as a character in the matter at hand. Please pay no attention, my lord, to that wicked man, Nabal. He is just like his name. His name means fool and folly goes with him. 
She repeatedly makes the conversation about my Lord, by which she means David, and your servant or your handmaiden, by which she means herself. She reduces the issue to one between the two of them. She removes this provoking third party and she substitutes the fellowship of God. But perhaps most brilliantly of all, she proclaims the promises of God to David. The Lord your God will certainly make a lasting dynasty for my Lord. The life of my Lord will be bound securely in the bundle of the living by the Lord your God. The lives of your enemies he will hurl away as from the pocket of a sling. When the Lord has fulfilled for my Lord every good thing he promised concerning him and has appointed him ruler over Israel, my Lord will not have on his conscience the staggering burden of needless bloodshed. When the Lord your God has brought my Lord's success, remember your servant. Abigail declares as fact a righteousness on the part of David and an allegiance which is currently hanging in the balance. She gives him an alternate vision of reality. If only he will choose to embrace it. He can be the champion of the Lord or he can carry the burden of needless bloodshed. But she states it as if he has already made his decision for God. So notice what she's done. She encourages David's confidence that God is at work. She increases his insight into God's purposes. And she calls him to blamelessness. And David responds in verse 32. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who has sent you today to meet me. May you be blessed for your good judgment and for keeping me from bloodshed this day and from avenging myself with my own hands. Otherwise, as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, who has kept me from harming you, if you had not come quickly to meet me, not one male belonging to Nabal would have been left alive by daybreak. That Abigail is the mouthpiece of the Lord is clear, both in declaring the promises of God as she does at the end of her speech, and in David's response, which is first and foremost, praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who has sent you today to meet me. It is David who is saved by Abigail, not Nabal. It is David who is saved by Abigail, not Nabal. Verse 36, when Abigail went to Nabal, he was in the house holding a banquet like that of a king. He was in high spirits and very drunk. So she told him nothing at all until daybreak. Then in the morning when Nabal was sober, his wife told him all these things and his heart failed him and he became like a stone. About 10 days later, the Lord struck Nabal and he died. For those familiar with the gospels, Nabal's end is familiar. Jesus' parable of the rich fool must have stirred up memories of this story for his first hearers. It ends just the same way with the rich man eating and drinking when suddenly God says, You fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you've prepared for yourself? 
This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for themselves but is not rich towards God. In Nabal's case, this reckoning takes 10 days. Then, after what period we're not told, Abigail becomes David's wife, bringing with her, almost certainly, all of Nabal's property. I said at the beginning that there were three elements to the Lord's dealings with David in this chapter. Confidence, insight, and blamelessness. Three lessons or three ways of looking at these events. There's a basic lesson for David, apparent from a simple reading of the events. The person of God is not to take revenge for offenses done to them, but to be confident that the God of justice is at work. Verse 39, when David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, praise be to the Lord who has upheld my cause against Nabal for treating me with contempt. He has kept his servant from doing wrong and has brought Nabal's wrongdoing down on his head. And despite his restraint and admirable example in chapter 24 when he refuses to kill Saul, David discovers that he still has much more to learn about totally trusting in the Lord's keeping. It's abundantly clear in the light of the differences between David's two encounters with Saul in chapters 24 and 26 that the events of this intervening chapter have significantly deepened David's confidence in God. One sign that God is working in us, not just for us, is that we have increasing confidence in his provision. A second indication that God is working in us is that we have increasing insight into his purposes. David's next meeting with Saul in chapter 26, I encourage you to go on now and and read that, shows us that this encounter with Nabal and Abigail has been a profound lesson for him, illuminating his situation with Saul and giving him greater insight into the ways of God. David's relationship with Saul is echoed in Abigail's relationship with Nabal. Nabal is like Saul. Both are fools in the biblical sense, those who have no idea of God's purposes. Abigail is like David. Both Abigail and David are described as intelligent, wise, and beautiful. Both are yoked by marriage to a fool, Although David is one step further removed, he's married to Saul's daughter. Both are required to be the apologist for that fool, even as they recognize that person's foolishness and sin. And both are destined for greater things at a time and in a way that the Lord determines. It's also possible that listening to Abigail's words, David recognizes how close he came to acting like Saul. Remember, Saul, because of a perceived insult, flew into a rage and had all the priests of the Lord executed. David here, because of a perceived insult, flew into a rage, and but for the the intervention of Abigail, would have had all of Nabal's men executed. Because of these insights, David will be equipped for his next meeting with Saul. 
In that next encounter, Saul will describe himself as a fool. David's claim of innocence will be a much more informed one, knowing how close he came to shedding unnecessary blood himself. David will trust God to strike down Saul as he did Nabal, or not, just as the Lord decides. And David's words to Saul will echo the way in which Abigail made Nabal irrelevant, as David seeks nothing from Saul and everything from God, making Saul irrelevant. Although David cannot know it, this next meeting will be his last meeting with Saul. It is by God's grace that he has been prepared to make the most of it. The second sign that God is working in us is that we have increasing insight into his purposes. Finally, a third indication that God is working in us is that we become increasingly blameless or increasingly pure. We learn to choose the path of sin, the path away from God's purposes, less and less often. Let me show you one way in which the Lord makes this transformation in our lives towards blamelessness. For me, the record of David's first encounter with Abigail is an image of the Christian life, with Abigail in the role of the Holy Spirit. The New Testament calls the Holy Spirit the counselor. He's the one who reminds us that we are no longer bound by sin. We do not have to respond out of our sinful nature. We can, but with the power of the risen Christ available to us, the power of his victory over sin and death on the cross, we do not have to give in to the temptation to react to disappointment, to insult, to injustice out of our old nature. As we learn to respond to his prompting, this quiet, calm, but insistent warning voice, we gradually die to the old nature and live more and more in step with God, enabling us to be increasingly pure and blameless and live lives filled, as Paul says, with the fruit of righteousness. Abigail's remarkable speech is exactly the same speech that the Holy Spirit is making to each of us every day when we're faced with the temptation to react to life out of our own strength. Like Abigail's, the Spirit's words are carefully chosen, not merely to convince us of his argument, but to reconnect us with God, and so to put everything in a proper perspective, to restore spiritual eyes to us, to recover for us the eyes of faith, a vision of the world from God's perspective, to reconnect us with God. The Holy Spirit intentionally uses language which reminds us of moments when we have had great faith and closeness to the Lord. He dismisses those who've offended us from the situation, reducing the issue to one between the two of us. He removes the provoking third, third party and substitutes the fellowship of God. And most brilliantly of all, he proclaims to us who we are in God. He declares as fact 
what it is like for us to be righteous, what it is like for us to live well, to live in step with God, an allegiance which at that moment is hanging in the balance. He gives us an alternate vision of reality if only we will choose to embrace it. And he states this to us as if we've already made our decision for God, inviting us to do so. Abigail's speech to David is the speech the Spirit is having with you in the face of every temptation that comes your way, calling us to blamelessness. But he will not violate our free will. He will not choose for us. It is you and I who must continue to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in us to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Amen. Let's pray. Let me pray in the words of Paul. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ Jesus to the glory and praise of God. Amen. You've been listening to the First Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. For more sermons and information about our church's services and programs, please visit firstbc.org.